0: Welcome to the Teaching Mythology Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie, from Education is Powerful. Come with me as we explore myths through a modern-day lens. Okay, are you ready for one wild creation story full of cannibalism and castration? Yes, I said it, and yes, we are going to talk about it. The Great Creation is Unlike any other creation myth in the world, it has a tiny bit to do with creation and a whole lot to do with the beginnings of the Greek god family tree and battles over power and control in the universe. When I was teaching and I would start this introduction to Greek mythology, this would normally take two full class periods. And I have my PowerPoint that I would use as a template or as notes to guide me along but it gave me a chance to tell a lot of introductory stories about the gods to to the students and this was generally one of the first things that I ever taught and so it was my chance to hook them and to get them engaged and to hopefully have them want to learn more so i'm going to follow along on my powerpoint slides and if you've bought this from my TpT store you'll notice that i add quite a lot that isn't in the slides, because it's a skeleton, it's an outline for me. And what I've noticed over the years is that as I learn more about the myths, I add, I add so many more stories that it it takes me longer and longer and longer to get through these, this first introductory PowerPoint. So here we go. And I do want to start with a caveat. (laughs) And I always would say this to students. There are multiple versions of the Greek creation story, many versions. And I will point out some, some differences. I will, you'll hear me say things like some say, some people say, but ultimately this is the one that I've landed on. This is the one that makes sense to me. And it's, ultimately a blend of various creation stories that I've read or heard um, about the Greek myths. So it's not perfect, uh, but it is the one that will be on the test. And so that's why I think it's the most important. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I'm really not. That's what I really said to students. So yeah, there you go. I'm the teacher. I get to decide what's on the test, right? (laughs) So here we go for real. In the beginning, there was only chaos. And from this chaos, two beings formed. Gaia, who formed the earth, and Tartarus, who represented darkness. And later on in the Greek myths, he also is like inside the earth and represents the deepest, darkest place within. And it becomes a prison for various titan gods. And then A little bit later on, it becomes where humans are punished when they go into the underworld. If you are a horrible person and you eat your children, then maybe that's where you might go. But Tartarus is a place and a person and kind of unknown. Now, if you've read the Rick Riordan Roman series... I love the way he describes Tartarus because in one of the books, Percy and Annabeth have to travel through the underworld and they have to get to Tartarus and they're actually traveling through Tartarus as if, as if he's a person. And like, I remember at one point um, out of his skin was where the monsters were born that, you know, kind of torment them when they're on earth. And I remember this part about his rib cage. I mean, it was incredible. So I love that imaginative take on Tartarus. But we don't know much about it. Just that he was there at the beginning with Gaia. Now, Gaia was lonely. And so she gave birth to a son named Uranus. Now, I say Uranus because it's easier for me. It's actually the Latin name. Uh, The Greek name is Oranus, I think. But I say Uranus, and I just get it out there, right? Like, let's just get the giggle and move on, because this is not the worst thing I'm going to say in this introductory PowerPoint to Greek mythology. We really end up having in the beginning Gaia, who is Mother Earth, and Uranus, who is the sky or the heavens. Now, it's said that in the beginning, Uranus would rain down upon Gaia, and that is how life was created, and from Gaia miraculously sprouted plants and animals. And at this point, I would stop and I would look at students. I'd wait to see if I could see a snicker in the crowd or or some teenage boy looking to the side going, did I just hear that right? If I didn't hear anything, then I would say, what, what do you think this is? Like, what does this remind you of? And I would get blank scare, stares because, you know, this is like the first week of school. They don't know me. <laughs> they don't even know each other. They're still being very well behaved. And I would say, hmm, Father Sky rains a liquid down onto Mother Earth and life is created. Hmm, what could that be? And finally, somebody would say, it's sperm. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for finally saying it. And it gave us a really good docking point. I'd always have to say, yeah, yep, you're right. You said it. Um, I just needed a student to say it, right? I needed a student to break the ice. Ignoring sex and mythology is actually impossible. And this gave me a chance very early on to talk about how we couldn't impose our modern moral views on sexuality onto ancient cultures, And I refused in my class to edit out or to censor any ancient depictions of art. Um, And when we get into world mythology, I think we're kind of used to it with classical mythology. But when we get into world mythology and you have fertility goddesses, yeah, some of them are pretty explicit. And I just, I don't censor it. It's actually in my disclosure that I we're going to be looking at ancient depictions of gods and goddesses in their natural form. I think that's how I worded it. And I would always say on the first day, what does that mean? Oh yeah, they're nude. Okay, good. Um, and I would tell students, if you're uncomfortable with nudity, you probably shouldn't take this class because I'm not going to censor artwork that's 4,000 years old, right? So by forcing some poor student or waiting for some poor student to say sperm, then it it gave me this chance to talk about sexuality and the myths. And the gods don't obey the rules. They don't obey our modern day rules. And even if you're not Christian, we live in a Judeo-Christian society where there are certain rules put upon upon us. And so um, we needed to kind of get over that because if you fixate on trying to put your morality system on ancient myths and ancient cultures, you kind of end up moralizing the myth, And then you miss like what they're actually trying to teach us. And you miss the really good themes and symbols and connections, right? Because you're so like icked out that Gaia like basically had sex with her son to create life and you just can't worry about it. Right. Okay. So Gaia and Uranus end up having 18 children First are there are three hectacronies. Now, if you know mythology, you know I probably said that wrong. I've heard it pronounced hecaton cherries. I've heard it pronounced hecton cherries, cherries. Oh, I don't even know. But I would say this so confidently that I never once had a student correct me. I would just say, oh, yeah. Three, they had three hectic And a student looking at my slide is like, yep, that's that's how I would pronounce that name. Mm -hmm. Because they don't know any different. And I try, I try to look up how things are pronounced. And I have a friend who actually teaches Latin and her degree was in like ancient languages. So I will ask her how to say things. But in the moment, I can never say it right. And so I just say it confidently. Students don't know, and it's okay. So um, the Hedekarines are also known as the 100-handed ones because they had a 100 hands and 50 heads. We don't know much about them, but they were incredibly powerful. Then they had three Cyclops or Cyclopes. Now, these are different from the Cyclops that show up in Greek myths, like Jason and the Golden Fleece or the one that Odysseus runs from. But they were like them in that they had one eye. They were incredibly strong. They could withstand heat. And so they actually end up playing a really key role later on that we're going to get to in next week's episode. But they can create weapons. And they have a long life. They're known as bad-tempered. And the Cyclops that show up later on in mythology, not these three original ones, but later on, they actually work with Hephaestus in the forges and create weapons for the gods. And then they had 12 Titan children, and I'm not going to go over all of them. Um, The kind of important ones that you should know are Kronos, who becomes king of the gods. He plays a really important role in this story. His wife, his sister wife, Rhea. Oceanus, Atlas and Prometheus. So, those are the ones that we talk about the most. So, here we are Uranus and Gaia have 18 children. Now, Uranus hates his ugly children, but he's also incredibly afraid of them because they are powerful and they are strong, and he's one paranoid guy. His own fear of his own children causes him to uh, lock them into Tartarus to like basically imprison them, right? Because they're gods, they can't die. So what are you going to do? You're going to lock them away. Now, like any good mother, Gaia is very angered by this. And she tries to get her Titan children to revolt against their father, but only one of them will do this. And that is Cronos, the youngest child. Now, I don't know if you're young, youngest in your family I am a youngest child, and I know that, you know, we're fairly confident and um, we believe in our own powers. So, this doesn't surprise me that Kronos does this. Now, to get, he needed help, right? So, uh, Gaia, Mother Earth, is probably the most powerful of them all. She actually makes a magical weapon for Kronos, and it's a scythe or a sickle. And this is the only thing that could harm Uranus. And it's known as a God-killing weapon, although it doesn't actually kill him. It just weakens him completely. Now, what's really kind of cool is that I've seen this depicted in some places as the Crescent Moon, which is beautiful because in the battle, Kronos actually cuts Uranus And it's said that this is what separates the earth from the sky, right? They're permanently separated from this point because of this event. So if this was the moon, a crescent moon that cut open the sky, I want you to imagine looking up at the night sky and you see a crescent moon. And it almost, it's, I mean, we know it's a physical planet, but in the ancient world, it could have looked as if the sky had been cut open, right? I just, I love the imagery of that. So this cutting of uh, Uranus is really important. Now it's said that three drops of his blood fell onto the earth, forming the Furies. And the Furies we're going to talk about later, right? They're spirits of revenge. They're monsters with dog heads and bat wings. They guard Tartarus. They punish evildoers. I mean, they're scary badasses. Now, in some instances, they say these three drops are actually the formation of the fates. We don't know much about that, and we're going to talk about the fates later. But in every instance, this cutting of Uranus is actually Kronos castrating Uranus, and his penis falls into the ocean, and this forms the goddess Aphrodite. I have so much to say about this. So let's first talk about it. So often when this myth is retold, and especially when it's retold for children, they take out this part. I mean, they just say he cut him open and blood fell into the ocean and it forms Aphrodite. No, 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 no. I mean, why do they censor this? Well, um, the patriarchy, let's just start there, because no male wants to have it out there that if you cut off their penis, you take away all their power, right? I mean, come on. This is totally the patriarchy. It's like the perfect symbol in the ancient world for the gods, a lot of their power comes from their masculinity. I mean, we see this with Zeus, right? Every single time he falls in love. I mean, he doesn't even have to touch a woman and bam, pregnant. That's it. I'm so powerful. And we see this so much in society where like a woman's pregnant and the boyfriend or the husband is like, yeah, I did that. Like they get all cocky and like, what? I don't think it was very hard for you to do that. I mean, good job, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of a wild thing. So it's always censored for kids, and I never censored it. So number two, I love that the goddess of love is formed from a sex organ. And this is really key to understanding Greek mythology, that for the Greeks, love was a very physical thing and depending on what history you read about the greeks they have some different views about sexuality in their culture but especially for the gods anytime they fall in love it's a physical relationship right we already talked about zeus and his many children but think about there are all these stories of apollo chasing nymphs um We have Poseidon raping Medusa, and it's always this sense of, if I love her, then I will have sex with her. Wild and crazy, but Aphrodite is passion. She is not the kind of love you have when you're 90 and you've spent your whole life with somebody. She is honeymoon love. That is exactly what she is. So the last thing I want to say about this is I have been evaluated two times while I have given this lesson in my career. I don't know how that happens. Just falls at the right time of the year, I guess. It's usually second semester. Two different administrators. One was a man. One was a woman. Um, One was in the state of Wyoming. One was in the state of Utah. And um, both times I knew it was coming, Right and I refused to censor this. So the minute I said penis, heads popped up and immediately kids looked to the back. Like they looked to the back of the room at my administrators wondering if I was going to get fired. It was so funny. Like I, it was so hard for me to keep a straight face every time. And, um, I never once had an administrator talk to me about it. I've never had a parent complaint or a student complaint. So, you know, I guess it's all fine. Uh, And I think it's because I'm explaining it or I'm using it for a reason. I'm not just telling this story so I can say the word penis in front of a bunch of teenagers because that's just, you know, creepy. All right. So this great battle happens. And afterwards, it's said that Uranus actually curses Cronos. Sometimes they say Uranus had a vision, I like curse better, but that he had, a that he cursed Cronos. And this is basically the gist of it, that one of Cronos's own children would destroy him the way Cronos destroyed Uranus. Boom. There you go. Prophecy. And now we have this like endless battle, right? And it's totally like father becoming like son. And so... Kronos rules. He becomes a supreme titan. He marries his sister Rhea. And some say that he actually stole powers from the other titans to become more powerful, right? He was, and he just became this like, I kind of picture him as like this maniacal overlord. Now, Kronos is actually the titan of time. And it's it's the destructive nature of time, right? So I like to think that Cronos doesn't get better as he gets older, right? He he's he's not aging gracefully here. Well, Cronos and Rhea end up having six children, and here they are in birth order. We have Hestia, Hades, Demeter, Poseidon, Hera, and Zeus. Oh, Zeus! You know he's important, and he's the baby. We love those youngest children, just like Kronos, Zeus is going to be the one who is going to overthrow Kronos. Seriously, the parallelism in the myth is incredible. Now, to stop this from happening, Kronos does something that is considered one of the worst things you can do in Greek mythology. It's considered worse than killing. It's considered worse than killing your own children. It's worse than infidelity. I mean, to the gods, infidelity is not a bad thing. So, you know, he eats every single one of his children. He's so afraid of them. He doesn't want to lock them in Tartarus. Let's not forget, in Tartarus, his brothers are still there, the Hectocaranes and the Cyclops, right? So can't send them there. So he, he eats them. Now, they're gods they don't die. And, uh, the Titans were said to be quite large. Um, you know, I'm sure they could be as tall as mountains. And so they just, you know, hang out in his stomach, grow up. Apparently they don't need to eat either. Or maybe they ate his food. I'm not sure. You know, we have to suspend our disbelief here for a second and just, just go with it. Just ride the wave We're accepting the myth how it is. So he eats every single one of his children, except for Zeus. Now, I'm a little angry with Rhea at this point because, seriously, girlfriend, five of your children need to get eaten before you do anything about it? I mean, Rhea, you are not winning any Mother of the Year awards, are you? So let me spell this out for you, just to be real clear. She gives birth to Hestia. He eats Hestia. So she decides, okay, let's go for round two. And she gives birth to Hades and he eats Hades. So she tries again. He eats Demeter. She has child number four. He eats Poseidon. She has child number five. He eats Hera. And then finally, she has child number six and decides she's going to do something about this. What she does is she actually gives Kronos a bundle of rocks to eat. And I mean, at this point, he's got to be so arrogant that he just swallows his bundle of war rocks and doesn't even question it. Like, doesn't even check to see that there's a baby god there. Like, nah, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I have, I, 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 it's, it's wild to me, like, what kind of person thinks that your wife's just going to stand by and let you eat your children? But, you know, he's done it five times previously. So, you know, what's a sixth? Well, this tricks Kronos. He thinks he has eaten his sixth child. And finally, Rhea decides, okay, I guess we're not having any more children. Enough's enough. Cutting him off. <laughs> so um, Zeus is actually raised on the island of Crete by... Uh, nymphs which are lesser goddesses most of them are children of Oceanus and what I really love about this is that it is said in the mist that when he would cry the nymphs would bang on pots and pans to drown out his cries so that Kronos wouldn't hear him now they've actually found caves on the island of Crete that have cave paintings that depict this isn't that awesome I learned that from a really great series on the History Channel called Clash of the Gods, and they have 10 videos. I love them. I use them in my class. I've made TPT products for them. They're incredible, but they they blend in the myths with, could this have happened really? Like, what's our evidence and history of this? So that's actually in episode one, and I think it's called Zeus. So you'll have to check that out. It's definitely worth using in your classroom and I'll probably talk about them quite a bit. So there's Zeus as a baby growing up on the island of Crete and he's slowly getting stronger and uh, that's where we're going to stop for today. So let's let Zeus grow up a little bit and next time we'll talk about the fall of Kronos, more cannibalism, and the rise of Zeus for joining me today on teaching mythology don't forget to rate review and subscribe and i'll see you next time